You know, I thought I would have started the sermon like I start most sermons. Mildly amusing anecdote, or a quote, or some song lyrics. There was a Hank Williams Jr. song with the same title as this, ser- as this sermon that I was thinking about quoting, but not today. I come before you today tired. I'm tired of preaching another sermon after mass murder. Tired of wondering why a teenager's right to purchase an AR-15 outweighed those children's right to life. Tired of wondering if my daughter will get to grow up. Tired of the hardened hearts, the callousness, the fear, the hatred that infects this whole land of ours. Tired of America's grievous illness, its soul sickness, its death wish. On this Memorial Day weekend where we honor those who laid down their lives for a cause greater than themselves, it seems that we don't just need an attitude adjustment, we need a whole soul transplant. When Paul writes to the church at Philippi, the joy of the gospel is still there, but there's still trouble. Hearts are starting to harden. Euodia and Syntyche, two women, are leaders in the church. However, there's conflict between the two. What the nature of the conflict is unclear, but it seems to have bled into the community, not unlike what happened at Corinth. People are getting factional. They're picking sides. They're turning inward, concerned about their own interests and those of their in-group rather than the good of the whole community. There's self-promotion going on. The same problem the disciples had, the desire to be the greatest at the expense of everyone else. So Paul knows that he needs to bring the Philippians back to basics. And so he urges them to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So what kind of unity does Paul have in mind here? Surely he can't mean uniformity. Uniformity is the same as assimilation. Assimilation is the attempt to utterly erase difference. It was the impulse behind boarding schools for indigenous children on this continent, the desire to assimilate them. It is behind the coding of every ethnic group with European origins as white. When Paul talks about being of one mind, he must be talking about something else. He must not be talking about assimilation. Paul begins with Christ. It all begins with Christ. In the words of an ancient hymn, Paul reminds the Philippians that Christ was equal to God. That he enjoyed all power and privilege. And yet he did not see such privilege as something to be exploited, be used for himself. The Greek words could be translated as spoils to be seized. Jesus didn't regard such privilege as something to be seized for his own power, for his own enjoyment, for his own use. He could have. The pre-incarnate Christ could have stayed with his Father in heaven. He did not need to undergo the undignified experience of being made of meat like we are. 
He did not need to experience the messy and dangerous process of being born or the indignities and anxieties that come every day just by being a human being. And he certainly did not need to suffer such an agonizing and humiliating death. Instead, he poured himself out completely in obedience to his Father. Jesus took on human form, but not just any human form. He took on the human form of a first-century Galilean Jew, a member of an oppressed and brutalized race, the form of a slave, as Paul says. And he didn't do it in expectation of a reward or glory. He did it out of obedience. He did it for his father who loved the world so much, he sent the son to save, enlighten, and redeem humanity, you and me. Jesus laid down his life willingly so that we could have life. In other words, he had, Jesus had the exact opposite attitude toward power and privilege that human beings tend to have. When we have power and privilege, we can see its loss as a threat to our very existence. Even if other voices are finally getting the chance to be heard, finally getting their own seat at the table, that change can be seen as a mortal threat. For the privileged, equality can feel like oppression. Now, it's not too hard to see how this might have been happening in Philippi. This is total speculation, what I'm about to say. But maybe one of those influential women had been with the church from the very beginning. She'd offered her home as a meeting space, bankrolled missionaries like Paul, and oversaw the church's ministries to the poor and the sick. And then another woman joins the church with her own gifts, with her own abilities. She offers her own home as a meeting space too because the number of people is growing so fast that it's just too big for one home. She begins other social ministries, other feeding of the poor, other healing ministries. She becomes known for her teaching and preaching. And then disagreements rise up over how things are done, over how they do church. Same old story. I offer this speculation not because Paul is addressing a conflict between two women, as if this sort of thing would only happen between women, which of course it doesn't. Have you ever been in the same room as a group of young, ambitious male pastors for 30 minutes? I offer it because it's common to humanity. Disagreements happen. Conflict happens. When someone's star rises, especially, it's very, very easy to be envious, to see that person as undeserving. We've all seen people with incredible power and privilege paint themselves as oppressed, as the real victims. Maybe you've been one of those people sometimes. I know I have. It's easy to get stuck on oneself. So when Paul urges the Philippians to have the same mind that was in Christ, he is asking them to let all of that go. To let Christ's example get them unstuck. 
Paul urges unity based on Christ, who poured himself out for us, for our salvation, not for uni- not uniformity. This is much more than telling them, what would Jesus do? This is a call to live into their transformation as the body of Christ. Because you see, that transformation is pure gift. It's a gift given in baptism, which we continue to live into our whole lives. James, hi. When I pour the water on your head, and I say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Those are Jesus' words coming out of my mouth, adopting you as a child of God, into God's family, and giving you true power, power of transformation, the power of a new life. Because you see, that doesn't, that doesn't mean there isn't any struggle from here on out for you. Baptism isn't magic. It won't fix all your problems. In fact, it might create new ones. Because when someone is baptized, James, when you're baptized, you will have suddenly billions of new siblings in Christ. You're going to be part of a big family. And as we know with human beings, conflict is inevitable. Things happen. You can't... You are raised a child of God to be sure with the promise of eternal life, with a transformed heart and mind, but you can't go down into the River Jordan, so to speak, without stirring up a lot of mud. That's not my line. I wish it was. That's, that was Arch, uh, Rowan Williams, who was the former Archbishop of Canterbury. That's why Paul talks about working out our own salvation. Now that it is ours, we get to live into it. We get to live into our salvation. God doesn't magically implant every answer to every question in life into our hearts. Wouldn't that be easy? Wouldn't it be easy if God just sent you a three-by-five card of what you were supposed to do that day? Whether you follow it or not is another story, but wouldn't it be great anyway if you got that card? That's not what happens. As baptized, redeemed children of God, we have the right and responsibility of figuring out some things for ourselves. We'll mess up a lot, to be sure. But when we remember that we have the mind of Christ, the same attitude towards power and privilege, then we will live into our salvation in a fuller, richer way. So God help us to live out our salvation, to work out our salvation, having the mind of Christ. God, help us to lay down our power and privilege for the sake of others, especially those who have too often been pushed to the margins. God, help us to see that in Christ, life is not a zero-sum game. God, help us to see that Christ's sacred image within each one of us so that we are no longer primarily rivals, adversaries, annoyances, or obstacles, but friends and siblings united in, with, and through Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen.